If you have a smartphone, please deposit it in the, um, what's that called? Not a bin. Basket. A basket, yes, the basket. Yeah. Otherwise, my obsessive compulsive thing will start oh. triggering, and we wouldn't want to do that. That would be cruel to me. Okay. So. What did we learn last week? The Kabbalists say what? Just stop. Just stop. That's right. Just what? That, just, stop. just stop. Stop. That's right. Just stop. Stop, stop talking. Stop thinking. Just, just stop. That was what we got from last week? That was a thing that came out of what we learned last week. <laughs> I don't even okay. All right. So, we spoke about the disagreement between the Rambam, Maimonides, and the Kabbalists, that the Kabbalists refer to God, refer to Hashem as Ein Sof, which means without end. And we spoke about what it means without end. Without end means what? what is without it? essence. Without essence, right? There is nothing that... Def- having an essence, something that defines what you are, is a limiting thing. It ends you. You are this as opposed to something else. And um, our minds work on that pr- basic premise. So, right, that we played my corrupted version of 20 questions. Chicken soup. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. And that's why as we learn what something is not, it is in some sense just as informative as what it is because we can understand things both in terms of what they are and what they're not. But that presupposes everything is, is it, it is a definitive something. It's this, whatever the this is, Right. And that's how the human mind works. And so, you know, and, and from that perspective, then what is God? God might not directly know what he is, but he's, what makes his essence distinct is that it's perfect and complete and the source of all good, virtuous things and blah, 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 that we spoke about a while ago. On the other hand, what do the Kabbalists say? God has no essence, right? That saying God is this, whatever the this is, even a this that you cannot articulate clearly is just as inapplicable to God as describing what size shoe he wears or what his favorite flavor of chocolate, what his favorite flavor of cake is. I gave it away, it was chocolate. But. <laughs> or what color eyes God has. Right. Okay. That was all well and good. But we were actually trying to understand how the sages of the Kabbalah actually agree with the Rambam, right? So in order to say how they agree, or not really agree, but more how they, they concede that he has a point, we first have to understand why they fundamentally disagree. Okay. So... Quick test, if you believe that by learning you are going to get closer to God, by developing your mind, by asking questions, by grappling with the hard, you know, moral and ethical and metaphysical truths, you'll come to some greater awareness of God, are you a Kabbalist? No. no. You are a? Well, we're going to wait to see what Chabadnik is. Chabadnik is more complicated, actually. You, know, you would be a follower of the Rambam. I know Chabad means intellect, right? If, on the other hand, you think that, how did you put it, just stop, like God cannot be understood, the concept of understanding doesn't apply to God anymore, the concept of color, size, or favorite opera, (laughs) then you should, then you would be what? You'd be a Kabbalist. Okay. Today we're going to introduce a new concept. What is my favorite kind of opera? No, what is Hashem's favorite kind of opera? <laughs> I don't know if Hashem has a favorite kind of opera. I mean, it depends. It goes back to the whole thing of Hashem having a gender. Right. Because if Hashem is male, then he can't listen to opera because all the female singing. <laughs> okay. But if Hashem oh. is a favorite, he can't... 
Okay. But Hashem's listening to everything, so you know what Right. Well, I guess it's the female side of Hashem oh that's listening gosh. to the opera. Is this problematic? <laughs> this is all said in jest, with only a tiny grain of truth buried in there. Okay. Should I not say? That's right. Well, we already discussed. We discussed last week that Hashem is a feminine side. Also, your father's allowed to hear you sing. There you go. All right. Oh, nice. so, all right. Okay. All right. You, you think this is all funny, but the Gemara actually discusses several apparent violations of God keeping halacha because there's a principle that God keeps Jewish law, and so there's questions like. Like, how does he make it rain on Shabbos? Isn't that caring in a public domain? And all sorts of interesting things. <laughs> the talk, I was, I was only half joking. I can't even get into this conversation. But we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> we're going to learn a new word, which many of you have heard before. And um, if you're brave, you can just try and say what the word means. If you're, you don't want to say, then no one will think less of you. Okay, the word we're going to learn is a sphera. Does anyone know what a sphera is? <laughs> no, those are pieces of construction paper. <laughs> those are not sphere. The actual, what is a actual sphere? What? It, 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 the, word, the word is related to the word for number and counting, but a sphere, it, no, it's not, it's not actually. No. An attribute? No. Anyone want to, anyone? Okay, let's take a show of hands. Who's ever heard the word sphera or in the plural spheres or spherot? Okay, so people have heard the word, but they don't know what it means. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to now play a little game called translate. I'm going to throw out a word and you tell me the translation of the word, okay? Then we'll get back to spheres. Tefillin. Um, Phylacteries. What? Phylacteries. Mikvah. Ritual bath, okay? <laughs> Wait, can we go back? Phylacteries, that's English? Yeah. It is an English word, yes. Okay. Um, chuppah. Wedding canopy. Wedding canopy. Okay. And, and, and we'll do one last one, just for the fun of it, caparis. Swing oh. so a chicken around your head. <laughs> Definition. No. Um, animal abuse. Okay. <laughs> why is why is translating all of these words what does difficult? Mean? So, I, so why is translating all of these words difficult? They have a very specific meaning in a very specific context. The problem is not a difference in language. It's not like I don't speak Hebrew, so I don't know what tefillin are. That's not the issue. The issue is if you don't know what Orthodox Judaism is, you don't know what tefillin are, right? And then the same with all of those other things, okay? So sometimes we don't know the meaning of a word because we don't know how to translate into the language which we speak. Like you may not know how to say dog in French. But sometimes the reason you don't know how to translate the word is because you just have no concept of what the word refers to. So giving you a translation doesn't really help, right? Which is why if you don't know what tefillin is, saying phylacteries doesn't help. And that's true even if you know what phylacteries actually are. Phylact- no, actually, phylacteries are something that was practiced in the ancient world, which was um, the idea that you could store some sort of psychic or magical personal energy in an object, often involving encasing something, some sort of magical incantation in a compartment. So that's what people think and you could th- no, and therefore, when you're struggling to find a word to describe tefillin, which have parts of the Torah encased in leather, 
it kind of is vaguely similar to this thing called the phylactery, and that's where it got the name English translation phylactery. Interesting. Um, what context? Well, because people in you know in you know ancient mythologies and stuff, there was this thing called phylacteries, and then people were like, oh, so like you have children, it's kind of like the phylacteries. And I don't want to think to go in what, uh, like magical or something. No, I don't think so. No. Okay. Um, and the same thing, like you can't really understand what a mikveh is outside the context of Judaism. Like it, it, it's a very technical thing, what a mikveh is. Like we discussed before, right? You can't like fill your jacuzzi with water and then and then ritually bathe in it. Doesn't make it a mikveh. And then kaparis will just you know we'll kaparis just, says kaparis, yeah, right? <laughs> Requires a whole long explanation of kaparis. Yeah. Is there a mezuzah a phylactery? No, a mezuzah is actually um, literally means doorpost. Ironically. The reason it's called the mezuzah is because you put the mezuzah on the mezuzah, so it got the name mezuzah. Mezuzah is just a Hebrew for doorpost. Would you call it a mezuzah? Can you put up the mezuzah between and, doorpost? Yeah. In fact, in Jewish law, it says that you need to put up the mezuzah only on doorways which have a mezuzah. Okay, well, this one has a mezuzah with no mezuzah. Right, we've discussed this. It is an issue. It is an issue. You should all create a firestorm on the WhatsApp group. And, and there's a door in the Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So getting back to spheres, the reason why, the reason why it's hard to translate the word sphere, although it is, one, it is related to the word for number. It's also related, related to the word for bright. It's also related to the word for story. But it doesn't mean any of those things. Right. Okay. So... I'm first going to tell you what a sphera does, because that's usually a good way to start. Okay? A sphera is a bridge. Does that mean every bridge is a sphera? No. no, but it means that a sphere is a kind of bridge. It bridges between two things. You have one thing, you have another thing, and what is a sphere is meant to do? Somehow connect them, somehow allow you to move from one to the other, right? Like a bridge two sides of the river. Okay. What is a sphera meant to bridge between? Okay. A sphere is meant to bridge between the Ein Sof, God, who we've just said God is like unknowable because he has no, no defined essence. There isn't a what God is. So that's one side of the bridge. What's on the other side of the bridge? Us. You could say us as long as you expand the word us to mean like all of created reality, not just necessarily you in particular. How yeah. do you say that the Ein Sof is on one side of the bridge so you are going to have to wait possibly until tomorrow for me to answer that question but we will answer it if not today then tomorrow if not tomorrow then the day after okay so the idea is like this that you have the Ein Sof on the one side created reality on the other side and what is the bridge between these a sphere now in fact it's not one sphere in fact that bridge has ten parts to it so how many spheres are there? Ten. For some reason, people think they look like that. They don't. Okay. So, what a sphere, what 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 a sphere is, is the, or the, is a, actually a part of the bridge. And the totality of the spheres, of which there are ten, in total, they all together serve as a bridge between the Ein Sof, between God who has no defined essence, and the created reality in which we inhabit. Yeah. So why do, what is the whole idea with the 11th one or the interchange? Like Who says called? there's an 11th? There isn't an 11th. Because someone put on the picture an 11th once. There's only 10. So why, why would there be a picture? I mean, where does that confusion come from? 
Um, which one's the fake one? Which one's the fake one? There's a, there's a, there's a differing opinions of which one's the fake one. We're not going to talk about it. But if it's something that like the foundations is based upon, how can there be such confusion? Like if um, it's 10 and it's 10. Like well, well, so here's the thing. You're, let me give you an analogy to what you're asking. You're, you're like a person who just was told there's a thing called an airplane. You walk into the cockpit, you see a blinking light, you say, what does that do? Right? We, needed some, we, need, we, need, we, need, we need more information before we get to what that one individual blinking light does. Okay? There is an explanation, but that presupposes you know a lot more about spheres. There are 10. Why there's a dispute about exactly how you count them other than in Judaism, whatever every time we give you a number, there's always a complication. Right? But other than that humorous little fact about Judaism, there is an answer, but you need to know a lot more about spheres. Okay. So let's go back to the basics. Okay. Okay. Now, the way to think of this, okay, this is a physical metaphor, okay, is that the spheres are like a river. Okay? What is the last part of a river? The mouth as it pours into the ocean, okay? So the last sphera is like the, 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 the ocean receiving from the mouth of the river. That'd be like the last sphera, okay? And then what would be the first sphera? The rain, the mountain. Well, we're going to do, we're gonna do, we're gonna do a, a river that's not driven by rainwater, just for make, to make this simple. So it comes from a spring, okay? Now, so... The first, what? The first one would be the spring. The first one would be the spring. Okay? So the spring is the first sphera. The ocean or lake, that's the last sphera. And then the flow from the spring to the ocean, that's the other eight in the middle. Okay? Now, what's very important to understand, is there before the spring? Yeah? Is there, one, is there like the banks of the, is there the... I, you have to be careful with the physical metaphor, not taking everything seriously, right? The, the, the ocean or the lake is like a settled bottle of water, right? The, all the other water is moving. This water stays stationary, and then you can have, like, sit on the edge of that water. You could, like, sit on the side of the ocean or side of the lake. The if water... The boundary between... What was the boundary between the mouth of the river and the water? No, I said, like, the water the river is flowing. When it gets into the lake or the ocean, it's not flowing from one place to another. I know there's currents, but ignore that. Right? Just the, the body of water just sitting there, right? Sure. And then you could sit at the edge of that body of water. Just a, right? But you can sit at the edge of the river. Right. The difference being, if you're sitting at the edge of the river, the water that you're sitting is flowing past you. So the water is not stable. It's moving from here to there. Whereas if you're sitting by a lake, there's just... What? Yeah. I mean, the problem dealing with very mystical ideas is that they're very mystical. And so it's good to ground them in something a little more tangible. The problem with grounding them in a tangible thing is that you have to have um, a point of reference. So if you're sitting by a river, what, what do you see? What do you experience the water doing? Moving. Moving, flowing past you, right? If you're sitting by the lake, those of us from Minnesota, yeah. then what is the lake doing? It's just kind of chilling. It's just sitting there, right? <laughs> if you're sitting by the spring, it's like, wow, there's just water seemingly magically appearing from nowhere. Right? So the top end is the water magically appears from nowhere. The bottom end is the water just sits there. And then in between the water, 
moves from one to the other, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Now, is it really the water magically comes into existence at the spring? No. No. Where is the water actually coming from? There's some sort of groundwater. Groundwater, right? Okay. So, the way the Kabbalists would think about this is that the Ein Sof, God himself, was like the groundwater, mysterious and hidden, and at least from human experience, seemingly um, undepletable, right? No matter how much water you take out of the ground, there's seemingly always more there. Wait, who believes this? It's a normal, it's human experience. Like, if you, if you, like, start, if you dig down until you get the groundwater, then you start, like, drawing water out of the groundwater, unless you do it on, like, if you do it... I know, but, if, but remember, th- these are all analogies from just everyday human experience because we don't actually have anything that's truly infinite, right? But if you, like, lived in some village somewhere and you dug and hit the groundwater and then you start, like, drawing out water from the groundwater... Right, and then you're just like, wow, we have a limitless supply of water. I know it's not really limitless, but relative to your human experience, it feels limitless, right? And this, the groundwater from which the spring is flowing feels like there's this mysterious, endless source of... Water. So that's kind of like an analogy for the Ein Sof. And then it kind of appears on the surface in this very little, and then it starts to flow as a river, and then it's flowing. And then it ends up, and you just have this concrete pool of water that just sits there. Okay? And so what the Kabbalists say is like this. God is Ein Sof. God is unknowable. God is, has no defined essence. But in order for God to relate to reality, to interact with reality, there has to be some kind of way that's going to work, some kind of structure to that. God is going to have to like do certain things and not do other things and be seen in certain ways and not be seen in other ways. And so how do you go from an unknowable God who has no defined essence to this thing that we think of as the creator? So the, the Kabbalist analogy is that how do you go from this mysterious, endless groundwater to a you know, limited pool of water in a lake? And the answer is a little bit breaks through the surface, flows down as a river, and then collects in the lake. Yeah. And what's the thing that's flowing? Ah, that's the big mystery. That's the big mystery. Okay. I will answer that, but, 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 but so, so the, the, the first thing, the, the first thing we have to start with is that this analogy is saying is that the thing that we think of as a God, the creator, the one who runs the world, the source of all morality, blah, 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 the Kabbalists will say, that's not actually God, what's that? The thing that when human beings think of God, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the one who runs the world, that's not actually God, what's that? The river. The that's not even the river, that's the lake. The, the end, end of the... That's the end of the river. How did you get the lake out of the mysterious, infinite groundwater? That's the process of it flowing out of the spring through the river. So what the Kabbalists say is like this, God himself, and for lack of words, because when we spoke about that, when we speak about God, there's really no gender, but, but there's, no, there's no knowing, it's just as we said at the beginning of class, just stop. But somehow out of that comes, for lack of words, something which goes through this kind of progression, however that works, that ends up resulting in this force of this creative 
moral, ethical, judgmental, providential force that we refer to as God. And so the Kabbalists now have turned the simple notion of God and made it very complicated. You have the Ein Sof, you have our notion of the creator of the world, and what is the process by which God goes from being the Ein Sof to the creator of the world. The bridge of that process is known as the spheros. So the spheros are actually a process of developing or turning somehow God into something concrete, definitive. I know. That's an issue. It is an issue. You can't sit by God's light. Well, yeah. The Sphero are a river and a bridge, but we're not talking about like a bridge over a river. No, no. We're talking about like the river is the bridge. Well, because what does a river do? It links the groundwater to the lake. But it doesn't just link them, it actually brings it into the river. Well, you could think of it as a bridge over the infinite gap between the Ein Sof and our reality. But then if you think, well, what does that mean? That means that God has to become something, for lack of words, more definitive, more relatable. But is, is that, saying a bridge and a river sounds different because a river seems unidirectional and a bridge seems like a That is true. Okay, so, so I want to give you just a basic rule about mysticism. The problem with mysticism is you're dealing with something that you don't actually know what it is. So really, what should you say about anything mystical? Nothing. Nothing. So then how am I talking about it? Talking about what it's like. So the way this works is that people that actually have the prophetic awareness of the mystical reality can then find comparisons in our reality and say it's like this or it's like that. And when they say it's like this or like that, is it really like that or it's like that in certain respects? Like when you're drawing an like, I'll use an example. Have you ever been to... Um, Beijing. Okay. All right. So one person here has been to Beijing? Great. But you were in Beijing. Okay. Now, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and Beijing is the capital of China. So they're the same, right? No. <laughs> they're not the same. Like, knowing what it's like to be in Jerusalem does not give you any sense of what it's like to be in... Well, I mean, it does give you some sense. Like, if you want to find the seat of government, you probably need to be in Beijing, just like if you want to find the seat of government, as you do need to be in Jerusalem, right? So that is a similarity, right? But the whole feel of the city is the same? Even what we mean by the seat of government is necessarily the same? No. Okay. So this is the issue, is that if you're, if you're, if you're explaining things, but not actually explaining them because the person isn't aware of them, you're using it by drawing analogies to other things, then... Every little thing is, is, an, is analogous in one respect, but not analogous in another respect. So the analogy of the river, right? That analogy is very helpful for understanding that at the end of the river, there's this concrete pool of water. It's very defined. There's like a lake. It's not flowing anywhere. It's just, it's what it is. And before the river even starts, there is, again, in the human experience, it seems like endless water, but water that you have no ability to access, right? So endless and inaccessible, finite, still, and accessible, right? And what flows between them? How does one turn into the other? There's a, there's a flow of a river. So then the Kabbalists say, okay, so there's the Ein Sof is unknowable and inaccessible. There's a sense of God which is 
at least in some principle, definitive, knowable, accessible. And there's some sort of process of how one flows into the other, and that's kind of like a river. But that's where the analogy ends, right? I mean, maybe there's more things that are parallel, maybe there aren't, but that's all I brought it for. Correct, which is why traditionally you didn't teach mysticism to regular people. We've discussed this before because really it was giving them pointers to come to have the prophetic awareness themselves. But because there are deep truths that are relevant for all of us in the service of God, and especially bringing Mashiach, the Kabbalists made a change and said we want to, te- we want to teach this and convey this to people. But that means we're working with metaphor, we're working with analogy. Right? I once was at a class that was given by Rabbi Steinsaltz, um, who should live and be very healthy. He had a stroke. He's very old. He can't talk anymore, um, which is sad. But anyway, so Rabbi Steinsaltz is um, a corrosive person in a positive sense. <laughs> well, it means that, if you, it means that if, you, if, if you like things to be interesting, he's very, you know, just to, 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 um, he, he, he's not interested in being likable. He's interested in conveying the truth and making sure that people actually deal with reality. Anyway, so he was invited to give a, a talk. It's the only live talk of his I ever heard. Um, and the subject was the Kabbalistic teachings of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, as explained by his son, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now, the Rebbe's father was a Kabbalist. He has a lot of Kabbalistic teachings. The Rebbe used to explain them. And Rebbe Shalom's going to do a class on that. Sounds very interesting. I went. I get there. He sits down. And he said he has an accent, which I'm not going to try and imitate. But he, he says that he starts off lecture that lecture topics are like gifts. You can give them back. And then proceeded to talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> you get a gift. You have to keep it. <laughs> and he proceeded to talk about the dangers of teaching Kabbalah. Because in Kabbalah, you can't, if people like you and I, people who are not prophetic, can't directly experience Kabbalah, then we're always speaking about it in metaphor. Well, the problem is, everything is a metaphor for Kabbalah. Okay? So a chair means something in Kabbalah. Okay? And so you can have really weird statements that make perfect sense if you decode the, 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 the metaphoric symbolism in Kabbalah, but are utterly ridiculous or meaningless or even harmful if taken. The way we understand, my, my favorite one to illustrate this is that the Zohar says that the feet, everyone knows that Yaakov had two wives? Okay, so it says that the feet of Leah penetrated the head of Rachel. Right, which like, if you think about that, like as the physical, that makes no sense, it's ridiculous, right? But if, if Leia symbolizes something, and Rachel symbolizes something, and feet symbolize something, and the head symbolizes something, and there's an analogy that, that can be explained, then there's actually something, okay? And so the problem is that you're speaking almost in a code. And the problem is if you're not, if you're not coming from a place of sincerity and honesty and humility, this was his point, you can, you can, Use call, you can use Kabbalistic ideas to justify and rationalize anything. Right. Okay. That's actually one of the reasons why it's called Kabbalah. It has to be received by a tr- real tradition. There's somebody, you have to come back and say, there's somebody who actually is having some kind of prophetic awareness, and this is their attempt to describe that using terms and metaphors that can give us some sense of what it's talking about. The spheres are not a river. But a river does help us understand something about what spheres are. 
A river is the flow from the unknown infinite groundwater. Again, unknown infinite in terms of regular everyday human experience to the finite, accessible, calm, still lake. Okay. And that flow between them is the process of how you get from one to the other. So how do you go from the unknown, unknowable, not just you don't know about it, unknowable in essence, inaccessible God, who's described as Ein Sof or called Ein Sof, to God in the sense of the creator, the source of morality, the source of judgment, the source of providence, blah, 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 blah. How does that happen? Is it like... Is it, is it God creates some other entity and then that entity runs the world on his behalf? No. It's that there's some kind of a, for lack of words, fl- limited flow out of, of godliness, out of God, that becomes what we know. In that sense, it's analogized to a river. But, well, is the ri- relative to the groundwater, is the river limited? It's only limited by what the groundwater Remember, the groundwater is relative to human experience is unlimited. The, there's only a so much, in the river itself, there's only so much water. Right, but the, even if you're saying that the groundwater is limitless, then everything, but then the river itself would also be limitless. It's limitless in, its how, in the fact that it can continue to flow forever. But at any given point, the river is only so long, it's only so wide, it's only so deep, it only flows so fast, and it ends at a specific pool of water. Hmm. Right? And there's, and there's, like, you can draw a picture, and then you can draw a picture of it. Right? And the pool at the end has this quality of being just, not just finite, but also quite stationary and calm and settled. Whereas the river, right, it's flowing and there's turbulence. Blah, blah. Now, are there other things about spheres that, that we need other analogies for? Sure. Okay. So here's another example. Okay. Here's, an, here's another analogy for a sphere or for the spheres. If there's a coal and the coal is burning, how can you tell that it's burning without touching it, obviously? If you're far away from it, how can you tell if it's burning? It gets smaller. If it glows, if it has flames. No, but just in one glance at it. If you see it, it's glowing oh, like or it's flaming. Moment, in the moment, the right? Because you, you can't see the heat, the burning of the coal itself. But if the burning gives off this glow, this flame, then you can tell that the coal is burning. So... Another analogy is that spheres, they're not the Ein Sof, but they reveal something about the Ein Sof. So the Ein Sof is like the burning coal, and the sphere is like the glow or like the flame. In that sense, that's, that sense, how one thing reveals or tells you something about something else. So there's a whole section of Judaism, which is the study of spheres and what they are and how they work, and how they serve to bridge between an unknowable God and religion, because religion involves like interacting with God, knowing what God wants. I mean, Hashem is described in the Torah in human terms. How does all of that make sense? And Kabbalah is a study of that process. And that's the process of how the spheres develop one from the other. Okay. That study is known as Kabbalah, which is very important. Do Kabbalists, what do Kabbalists therefore study? Do they study the Ein Sof? Do they study God? No. no. Do they study the world and morality and ethics? They study spheres and everything that relates to spheres. So Kabbalists will study the spheres themselves. They'll try and understand how Judaism relates to the spheres. And there are different ways of understanding the spheres. I'm going to give you now a simple way of understanding the spheres, a classic way of understanding the spheres. 
but a way that is not universally accepted. And in fact, um, this is actually what the Ramak, the, the Mershkar is getting at, is that ultimately the Kabbalists don't, they say that this is not really a good explanation. If you want to play piano, you need fingers. Does that sound reasonable? No. How are you going to play piano without fingers? So those are fingers. Especially in Hebrew. Did you know that toes are yeah. the fingers of the same Hebrew word? Fingers. Some most people, you, you, even if you don't have fingers, then you need a finger substitute, which functions as a finger. Like you need a finger. Like, it's like, like I need a hammer, and I don't have a hammer, so I take, so I take a can, you know, of of, of beans, and I use that. Oh, that's not a good idea because that's not good enough. And I take a rock, and I use that. So the rock has become a hammer. No, but you don't need a hammer. But that's getting to exactly the point, which is that many things are defined by, by their function. In fact. One of the he- meanings of the Hebrew word kli or vessel means something that is defined by its function. So you need fingers. If you don't have fingers made of flesh and blood attached to the palms of your hands, that's fine. Find something that you can control just like fingers that interacts with the keys of the keyboard the same way as fingers, and they've effectively be called fingers. Same thing. An artificial finger or a finger on your toe, on your foot. It's a finger. Okay. Now... Which means your desire to play the piano, your knowledge of how to play the piano, your love of the piano, none of those things actually get the piano played. What gets the piano played is? The fingers. So that means the most, that means what would you happen if you had somebody, God forbid, they loved piano, their life was piano, and God forbid they lost their fingers. It's very sad. Why? Right. They're missing some kind of a bridge between their, for lack of words, their soul, their spirit, and the external reality. Right? They can't bring about what they desire out in the real world because they lack the means to make that happen. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine, but that's not going to help us understand spheres. Wait, so the bridge between the... Um... So there's a person whose whole life, his whole passion is playing piano, and they don't have fingers. That's a problem, right? So what are the fingers? The, the fingers are very interesting. Fingers have this, the, these two fascinating um, aspects to them. Number one, they can hit piano keys. Number two, they're responsive to your will. Right? Notice they, they, right? What's the difference, say, between a finger and um, a pen? A pen can also hit a piano key, right? What's the problem? My desire for the piano key to be hit by the pen doesn't actually move the pen, does it? So the pen, the pen, the, 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 the pen it's like only one side of the bridge. It interacts with the physical world, but it doesn't respond to my desire, to my will. On the other hand, my fingers... They're physical, so they can hit the piano keys, and they're responsive to my desire, to my will. Which means they serve as a good bridge between me, my will, my spirit, my desire, my passion, and the physical piano. Okay? That's what makes fingers different than pens, forks, and many other things, is that they directly respond to my will while simultaneously 
interacting with the physical world. Make sense? Okay, because if you're going to be a bridge, you have to be able to connect to both sides, right? A what? A good example, as opposed to like, so this one for metabolism is like a bad example. Oh, I'm going to explain, first let me explain to you what it's an example of, and then we'll talk about why it's a bad example. And then we'll get to what's a good example. Okay. This is, this, like, this, like if you first want to introduce spheres, this is a good thing. It's just that's, the time is going deeper. So before we go deeper, let's get a simple explanation. Okay, chassidus was something, like this explanation is flawed. It's not wrong in the sense of totally off. It's just lacks a certain depth to it. But first, before we get what it lacks, let's understand. So you have fingers. Okay, now here's the thing. I'm going to use a simplistic aspect of God's connection to the world, okay? Which is reward and punishment. Why am I using reward and punishment? Because it's simple, it's easy. Is that because that's what I think you should focus on primarily? No, but it's just easy, okay? So, if a person does a mitzvah, they get rewarded. And if a person does a sin, they get punished. Basic concept in Judaism. Okay. So, that would mean that God would need something which is the proverbial carrot and the proverbial stick, right? He needs something by which to punish you and some, God forbid, or something by which to reward you, hopefully, right? Just like a person who has a desire to play piano, that's not good enough. They need the fingers that are responsive to their desire and actually can hit the piano keys, right? If God is, what, if God is Ein Sof, if God is nothing, he's not a defined essence, right? Well, if he gives you, if he gives you nothingness, he gives you un, un, unknowable, undefinable being, that's not, that's not a reward, that's not a punishment, that's, that's completely detached and removed. Just like, just like your desire and your passion doesn't actually interact and, and affect the piano in any way. So if God in his all you know, endless, unknowable, undefinable being has some sort of desire to reward you for your mitzvahs, he's going to need something that is responsive to that desire on the one hand and simultaneously actually translate his reward when it hits you in your reality, right? And he's going to need something that's going to do the same thing for punishment. So therefore, God has to have kind of like a, a, a tool by which he rewards you and a tool by which he, God forbid, punishes people. That thing that he rewards and punishes with, it's responsive to his desire to reward a punishment on the one hand, but, it trans, but it's actually, def, it's very specific. This rewards and this punishes. This gives blessing and this the opposite of blessing. And so a very simple Kabbalistic model works like this. There's God. God is unknowable, but there's one thing that's true about God. In some sense, God has a passion, desire to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. And therefore, just like the piano player's desire to play the piano, and that results at each finger hitting the right key at the right time, his desire to reward the righteous and punish the wicked causes his causes the sphere of kindness to reward the righteous and causes the sphere of judgment to punish the wicked and those spheres they're like a bridge between God and the world they're like fingers in fact in Kabbalah they're often described as fingers you notice you have ten fingers by the way and there are ten spheres yeah they're like tools that God uses to run the world I'm making it simple by only doing two kindness and judgment and reward and punishment but it's more complicated than that obviously yes 
because you're giving him desire. Yeah. Um, maybe. Maybe it depends what you, it, you then we have to do like an, an, a critical mass of what you mean by desire. I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm also not agreeing with you. I'm saying it's, 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 it, it's, something, it's something that is discussed in Kabbalah, but because that's not the point that I'm talking That's not the point. Bracket that for a second. If you bracket that, you still see that there's a need for something more concrete, going back to the, than desire, right? By what means does he reward the righteous and by what means does he punish the wicked? Right? By what means is your desire to play a particular piece actually get the keys to move in the right? There's something that serves as a bridge between the desire and external reality. So in, in your, the case of the pianist, it's the fingers. In the case of God, they're called spheres. I agree with you that that's a question of how can you, describe, how can you say God having a desire. I, I, I'm not disagreeing that that's not a question, but I'm being intentionally ambivalent about Um, I could, but not right now. It, 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 it is a big issue. I'm not going to disagree. It's not a big issue. It is discussed, and um, I might discuss it. If I don't, it's because I don't want to stray too far from the time it actually is talking about. But if I do, it's because I really do want to talk about it. So, wait. Yes. Right. They're quite explicit. That there are ten and only ten, not nine, not eleven, just ten. How do we know that? Prophecy, right? The whole thing is prophetic. There's no way to like figure that out from observing the world. There are only ten. Yeah. In Egypt, when the sorcerers say this is the finger of God, is that referring to this? In Kabbalah, yeah. Like the Kabbalistic interpretation. Yeah, yeah. How do you understand it without there's a bunch of different commentaries. But I don't want to get too sidetracked. That's Wait, so where is this written down? Um, so this particular explanation was by a famous Kabbalist named um, Rabbi Menachem from the city of Ricanti, which is, I believe is somewhere in Italy. Um, and he wrote a book on Kabbalah. And in his book on Kabbalah, he gives this explanation for the spheros. Um, and then it becomes discussed and debated how valid and how good is this explanation. But it's like a, considered a good basic explanation. And there are definitely earlier things in the Zohar and the Sefer Yitzhira which definitely fit this. Like the, the Sefer Yitzhira says quite explicitly that the, the, the ten spheres parallel the ten fingers. So, um, that's, yeah. Although it doesn't use the example of a piano. That, that I added. Zohar, it's, it's lots of places. It's, 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 what you're asking was a very, very good question. It's just like not the thing we're talking about right now. Okay. Now, what this means is that just like your fingers are physical, Right? The spheres can be defined, you know, ways of interacting with the world, of creating, governing, exerting providence, rewarding, punishing, blah, 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 blah. And just like your fingers, they are 
responsive to your desire and to your will. The spheres are directly responsive to, for lack of words, the desire or will of, the, of, of, of God who's unknowable. Okay, that's all very good. What's the problem with this explanation? There's a lot, but what's, what's an obvious, hopefully obvious problem? It's not God then running things. That's right. That's what the remark for Moshe Kordover in the party like, has a huge problem with. Right? Your desire to play the piano, I don't know if anyone, and this is actually why I use the example of playing a piano. Does anyone here play an instrument? Okay. If you don't, you type. Typing also, but it's, it's better with an instrument. Um, when you're playing an instrument and you're playing, you're not practicing, you are playing, um, your mind, your, your, your soul, your spirit is not engaged in a bunch of individual distinct actions. Say, now I'm going to use my index finger to hit the, like that's not how it works, right? And practicing, you're like training the fingers to have that response. But then, like I was speaking to one of the Bachman who, who, plays, who plays guitar actually pretty decently. Um, and he was speaking about the difference between practicing and performing. We're just talking in the context of some other discussion. And it's like, he, 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 it's very um, vivifying to play and to perform in a way that's not practicing because like he just, throws his whole spirit into the music and then the fingers just like do it. But that means that there's a level of detachment from where he is holding and the individual notes he's playing as distinct things. Like muscle memory. Right. And what that basically kind of sounds a little bit like something known as paganism, which is that the ultimate source of all of reality is kind of detached from the individual ongoings of reality. Right? This is what's described by King David and Tillam as Oz of Hashem Asarz. God has abandoned the earth. God is so transcendent, he is not directly engaging with the individual goings on of individual people. And what this basically means, like, God has this vast spirit towards whatever, and then as a byproduct, you're being rewarded and punished. Yeah. But, okay, but I would never look at a person who is, like, soulfully playing guitar and say, like, wow, your left index finger just did a great job. Like, yes, that's That's correct, because you are not relating to the individual note in isolation, are you? You're relating to the totality of the music. Right. Okay. So, but what that would mean then, if we were taking the analogy, is that God is not engaging with your individual particular righteousness. And in order for you to appreciate God's providence, you would have to disassociate from caring about your individual righteousness or lack thereof. And it becomes about the grand story of the totality of the universe and not about individual people. And that is, in essence, what paganism is. Paganism was creating a split. They're the religious, the religious spiritual reality of the individual has no actual real bearing on the ultimate reality. Okay. You're saying that like the function of the left index finger and all of the notes that it plays should also be directly God's essence? I'm saying if you want Judaism. Yeah, I don't want Judaism. So in Judaism, <laughs> Judaism, right, if you read the Chumash, there's this weird thing in the Chumash, right? This is why the Greeks like had issues with the Chumash, okay? So you read the Chumash. God creates the world. What does he create the world? Out of nothing. And God's busy like there's humanity and blah, blah, blah. And then God's like... Stops, ignores humanity, and then he focuses on this one guy named Avraham, right? And then he gets, like, hyper-focused on what's going on with him and his family and, like, what food they eat and, like, who they marry and, like, what clothes they wear and, you know, you know where they hang out and where they can't hang out and who can sit next to who. 
And then he's willing to like overturn the laws of nature to make that stuff happen. And the Greeks are like, you don't actually believe that the ultimate source of all being and all reality has a personal vested interest in whether or not you like put shellfish in your mouth or not. You don't really believe that, do you? Like, yes, we do. Like, no, you don't. Like, yes, we do. Like, no, you don't. We're going to like ban your religion and, and, and you, you'll, like, you'll, you'll become normal. And then we, we fought a war and now we have latkes. That's basically how that worked. That's the story of Hanukkah. And donuts. No, like they, they really fought, were bothered by it. Like, like the, idea of, the idea of personally, God being personally connected to you makes a lot of sense if the God is basically some sort of you know, caricature of a human being, like all the Greek mythological gods or all the gods of any pagan religion. But the ultimate source of all reality isn't directly engaged with the <coughs> ongoings of one finite individual. And that's the, 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 the you know, anyway, everyone's heard that like Judaism, we believe in monotheism? Sorry? Monotheism, you've heard of monotheism? Oh, yeah. yeah, monotheism, okay. What does monotheism mean? In one God. No. It believes in one theo. Belief in one theo. It's belief in one theo. No, you're right, but the word God there is so vague as to be utterly useless. Monotheism is a belief in one theo. Now, theo is a Greek for God, but actually, it, um, in, in, in the philosophy of religion, we differentiate between a concept called theism and deism, which both mean there is a God, so what's the difference? Theism is that God is in some sense involved, providentially connected to what goes on. And deism is that God is somehow, there is some sort of ultimate cause, but that's it. Okay, now, monotheism means that there's one God who's providentially involved in all of reality. Okay. But see, Judaism actually doesn't just believe in monotheism. Because you can be a monotheist and not believe in Judaism. And I don't mean because you believe that you don't have to keep Shabbos or something. Judaism has a switch as a thing, like which made the Greeks really annoyed about monotheism, which is we believe there's monotheism, but what is the thing that this God is invested in? The totality of reality or individual limited people? In other words, to say that there's one God, he creates everything, and he's invested in the success of that overall project, that's one thing, right? There's a certain amount of intuitive sense that that makes. But to say that being that creates all of reality is now invested in the ongoings of one individual person, right? The way our sages say that every person has to say that the whole world was created for me. There's if, if there were no other people, what I do would still matter to God. I'm not just one piece of a larger puzzle. I can also view myself as the only part of them. I'm the whole puzzle. There's an, a concept of an, in, you know, we speak about an individual connection to God. So, so the, the, the Greeks, and, and you know, for that matter, this this still exists in many religious is that it's hard to reconcile like the ultimate source of all being and being personally invested in the ongoings of one individual who lives at a certain point in history and dies at a certain point in history and made specific choices in a specific context and so what those that critique this explanation are saying is that you are subtly still acknowledging that duality you're saying God is not directly involved in the rewarding of the righteous and the punishing of the wicked. He transcends that distinction. That distinction stems from some lower level of reality. You call it spheres and the pagans called it the pagan gods. 
Yeah. Right. The the player, because even though he's not mindfully choosing every note, creating every note, he is still like he does still care about each of those notes. Each of those notes is intentional on some level. Right, but the issue is the on some level part is what really bothers, because it shouldn't be on the note is important itself. And, and that's, why the, that's why, even though you, we can use this metaphor, and it does work in explaining certain parts of Judaism, there is an element of Judaism that it fails to capture, which is, at the end of the day, whether or not you light Shabbos candles or don't light Shabbos candles, is that ultimately important? Or is it only important in some larger context? Are you only a screw in some larger system run by certain elements that God has put into place that ultimately all derive their power and energy from God's will? Or... Is there actually a relationship? You know, you know, the, the, when we describe in Shir Hashirim like God is a husband and we're the wife, is that referring to the collective of the whole Jewish people only, which it does, or is it also referring to each individual Jew's relationship with God? Do we? So I hear you that like obviously we believe we have an individual relationship with God. Do we not also believe that we are screws in the system? Well, no, we believe that we. So, so this is why the the proper metaphor is better is more family. In family. The concept of being part of a whole and having individual value is not a dichotomy. That's why Judaism is tribal. Like in, a, in a family, right, each individual in the family has to be valued as an individual, right? They're not, you're not, you're, it's not a company in the, you know, with the human resources department. The individuals matter as unique individuals. And at the same time, right, the full thriving and flourishing of those individuals is within the larger context that they're connected to other individuals. And so there is a whole greater than the parts. So we're not screwed because screws are just totally meaningless. That's right, right. And so it's not that the Rakanti was saying on paganism. He's not, right? And he has his defenses and he has justifications. But the criticism of many Kabbalists, and Moshe Cordovero, very explicitly, and this is broad in Chassis, that's how I know about it, is that on some level you're still, you're, you're, you're paying a little bit of lip service to this idea that the ultimate reality doesn't really have a direct connection to me and what's going on with me. Then that's why you needed to put this like, it's not even, it's, not, it's less of a bridge and more of a, like, a, a, of a mask. It, it, it's, you know, the, the difference between ward and punishment is a lower level of reality than God himself. So it means God is not really invested in, you know, rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked, and that's not a good analogy. Yeah? If God is, if we're saying God is invested in the congruence of every human being, is that... Okay, so so this is an issue where we're getting the, the order of the ideas correct would help. God recreating the world at every moment does not necessarily mean God is invested in each individual entity that he creates. Okay? Um, a, simple, a, a, a simple way of thinking about this is a screen with pixels. Um, the pixels, you constantly make sure that the pixels are getting electricity. I mean, you're not creating the pixels, but they depend on your constant, you know, making sure they're getting their electricity. You're not the generator of electricity, but you're making sure they get and have plugged in and have a battery, right? Do you actually care about the individual pixel as an individual, though? Like, you don't name your pixels and like, oh, today you're flashing red with a little tinge and I turned green. Like, you don't do that, right? No one relates their pixels as individuals. At least not normal people, right? Okay. So... No, 
No. So what I'm saying is the fact that God is constantly recreating everything, everything depends on him, doesn't necessarily mean this idea of individual investment. Is that like the... One second, one second. Okay. As opposed to like the Bible should to introduce the like the concept of everything really has purpose, everything's invested in like every second. So sort of. Okay. So the thing is like this traditionally Judaism limited this idea that God is personally invested to people. Right. And there were differing opinions as to is it all people, is there types of people, but it was people. No, no, not in the, the Tanakh is very vague. I'm saying if you look, at, if you look, if you look, if you look in all of the, 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 the medieval thinkers, the, um, and all the Kabbalists, you tend to see that the focus is all about the individual, the individual person. So some people say it's Jews and not non-Jews. Some people say it's it's adults but not children. Some people say it's every individual person. Like there's different views of not only people. Only people. Only people. Only 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 people. What about wait, wait, let's wait. Let me finish talking. It's only people. There's a lot of debate about what gets you to count as a person. So the Rambam has his view of what counts as a person. The Rambam had his view of what counts. But it basically all agrees like this. God is only invested in individual people. And we debate what defines, makes a person qualify as a person. Okay. The Rambam has a very strict view on this. But I want you to see that the Baal Shem Tov did something very radical. And the Baal Shem Tov said God actually is invested in everything, not just people. So I don't want to spend too much time on this. The Rambam, the, the, the problem with taking one thing out of a larger context is even the Rambam actually says that God is invested in people, but the Rambam holds a view that being a person depends on how much you get in touch with your ability to know, as we spoke about in earlier classes, and therefore children are actually not people. They're potential people. Wicked people are not really people. They're only potential people. Because to actually be a person in the Rambam's view, you have to actually be connected to some metaphysical truth. Other people, most other people actually disagreed with that. And they said that being a person does not depend on actually being connected to that metaphysical truth. So it's not, the Rambam doesn't say that God only has providence over some people. What the Rambam actually says is only some, of the, some people actually count. How does this relate to part of the whole? So, but, so the idea is that basic Jewish idea is that God is individually invested in every person. The Baal Shem Tov, for reasons I don't want to get into right now, extended that God is individually invested in every single thing. Okay. The problem, going back to this, is that if you say that God, that it's like the piano player, and people are keys, regardless of your definition of people, the piano player is not really, you know, when he's playing piano because you know, his whole life and soul is into this piece of music, he is not invested in a particular key hitting a particular note. He's invested in something that kind of transcends any individual note. And so if you use that analogy, what you're saying is God is not invested in the individual person and therefore the reward and punishment of that individual person, however you conceive of that reward and punishment, what your definition of person is, has some element of denying this basic notion in Judaism that God, the creator of all reality, is himself personally invested in the moral caliber and righteousness of individuals. And of course, the Baal Shem Tov, not just individual people, but even individual things like leaves and you know, particles of dust. Maybe. 
Right. So this is why the Kabbalists can't just accept this explanation that the spheres are just like, like fingers. There has to be something more to the story. And in the Kabbalists trying to give you more to the story, they end up conceding two things that the Rambam says. So remember this, just one second. Remember how he got this thing? That there was one line where it says, the sages of the Kola have agreed or conceded with the Rambam, with Maimonides. Rambam says that Hashem has this defined essence, makes him what he is. Somehow in dealing with this problem of how the spheres, which are not the Ein Sof, they're definitive, they're limited, they somehow serve as a bridge between the unknowableness of God and a finite connection, some concrete involvement. Without, but in order to avoid the problem of God being too detached, like with the finger analogy, you have to have some other metaphors and some other analogies. And in doing so, you end up bumping into something that sounds surprisingly similar to what the Rambam says. How do they hold a view which they can't fully back up? How does who hold a view? The the well, see, here's the thing. The, the, when he says the same, because what you have to think about it is like this, and maybe I'll give you a little bit of history of the work of the Pardes. So, has everyone heard of Einstein? Yeah. Okay, if you know nothing about physics, you know that, that Einstein like really changed stuff in physics, right? You know that there was like, you may not know what, what physics is, you may not have just taken a class in physics, but like Einstein, like, it's all different now. Okay. So, the Arizal, was like Einstein. He like changed everything. We'll talk about the result later. All these discussions that I'm talking about, there was a Kabbalist named Ramosha Cordovero mentioned. He wrote a book called The Pardes. And what he did is he basically collected all the major views of all the Kabbalists and attempted to create some sort of synthesis and order. And take into account all of the different... What? When did he live? He actually lived the same time as the Rizal. The Rizal was a student of his for like a year. Okay. Um, he lived in Sfas in the early 1500s. Okay. He's buried right next to that result. And he, in this book, basically what he does is he quotes all the primary sources in the original Kabbalistic texts of the Sefer Yetzirah, the Zohar, and all the major medieval Kabbalists, summarizes all their opinions, and he basically tries to create some sort of synthesis where possible, and, and, so, so that we're, you know, and, and reject things as ridiculous when there's no way of defending that position. And so what he does is he basically says, like, the, 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 what, 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 what this Rakanti, this view of, like, the being fingers and being, like, 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 tools, it isn't wrong. It needs tweaking. And in his attempt to tweak it and then draw from what other Kabbalists have described and create some sort of syn- synthesis of all these approaches, he ends up with something that, in conclusion, ends up looking... Very much like the Rambam, that's which I'm going to talk about tomorrow. That's what someone you took their oh, so, so, so now, but here's where it's very important to understand, is that the standard accepted view in Kabbalah is that if you want, is that the Ramak is the final say on pre-Arizal Kabbalah. The what? The Ramak, Moshe he is the final authority. So he speaks for the... Right, in other words, because we have a general rule in Torah, which is if you have a later source who is able to synthesize the different considerations of earlier sources, their words are the final say. And then we actually retrospect say is that the truth in all of those positions is be, was really what, what he got at. Okay? And so in, 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 in general, um, when he says the sage of the Gola have agreed with, with, with he's saying the conclusion of these centuries-long discussion of trying to make sense of the spheres before the Rizal showed up on the scene was that we actually reached some sort of agreement with 
So, which we're going to talk about tomorrow, like, what is this agreement? But, but the, there's, on the one hand, God is ain't self. And on the other hand, he can relate to the world in some kind of, like, systematic way. And the bridge between those two is known as spheres. But the classic or simplistic understanding of a sphere of how you do that would be like a finger. It creates still a level of detachment. That on some level, my fingers hitting the keys is not the same thing as my spirit being invested in the keys. And if that's the case, what happens in the world that's attributed to the spheres is not really showing a personal individual connection to the Ain Sof, to the unknowable God. And in trying to solve that problem by using other metaphors and other concepts, you end up coming closer and closer to something that incorporates or sounds a lot like what the Rambam says. Are those as part of, like, are they a separate creation to God? Or are they well, that's, that's, that's an issue. If, if, if right. you use the analogy of fingers, they basically sound like it. And then God has to be something. If there's something coming from God, which is the spheres, then God has to be something. No, because God, 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 God creates ex nihilo, so that's... that's the, is, so is it creation or cause of God? Right. So the Rakanti actually quite clearly says that the spheres were created by God. Okay. And he's like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> this really is... Like, like if, if you, and it follows from that. If the fingers aren't created by the soul. The fingers aren't created by the spirit. The, sorry, the fingers aren't an extension of the spirit. The fingers are something external. Your soul can't create things, so it needs you know, the parents to make the fingers. And then the soul comes in and uses them. Okay, God can create his own fingers, but then the fingers aren't him. There's something he made. Again, furthering this idea that there's this element of detachment between God himself, the ultimate unknowable being of the Ain Sof, and the individual goings-on of the person that come through the spheres. And so even though I don't know what spheres are, and at the end I don't know what spheres are, I've been studying this for a long time, and people have been studying it for decades, decades, they also know what spheres are, because you have to be prophetic. But there's enough of an understanding of what role they're serving that they have to be conceptualized in such a way that preserve all the things that we know are true. God is Ain Sof, but God is also personally invested in what goes on with each individual person, and actually the Bhagavad says each individual thing. And if that's the case, the analogy of, you know, it's, there's some kind of flow, some kind of process like a river, it reveals something kind of like the flame, but the actual way it interacts can't be construed as like fingers and, and, and the spirit alone, because that still does have some elements of detachment. Well. Because well, there is because if you think about it, right, you think even in the now, even in, it was, if, if you think about it, even the analogy of the fingers, right, right, your desire and your passion to play that piece of music is flowing into. But it flows as part of the. That's right. So that so the, in this view would say there's the 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 the. the just like the fingers aren't your spirit, but your spirit flows through the fingers as you're playing, your passion, your desire to play. So they would say. So the Rakanti would say, in what sense is the spheres like a river? The spheres aren't like a river. The river is something that kind of flows through the spheres. But again, the fact that we're making this distinction is why all the other Kabbalists had a problem with this. It's, you're creating a level of detachment. We don't want that level of detachment. Judaism isn't about that level of detachment. That's like our whole issue with pagans. Is that... So while there's truth to this metaphor, we need other metaphors to complete the picture. And in doing so, we're going to end up with something that legitimizes what the Ram says, that God has this defined essence of what he is that can then be transmitted to the godly soul. Which is how we got into this whole mess, if you remember, right? That our godly soul has the same essence of God, which presupposes God has an essence, which is controversial according to Kabbalah. Okay. Yes. Last um, question. So, 
in order to understand this first, can we try and understand what they're not? Or is that not something that, like, it's because... Maybe. Maybe. As in? As in... Potentially. There's elements which understanding what they're not is going to be helpful. There's elements which is not going to be helpful. It's, it's, it's more complicated. Than that. There, it, it doesn't fit into a simple yes or no answer. I will tell you one thing that the that the Sefer Yitzirah says in translation. It says discern them. No, sorry, sorry. It says discern from them. Um, yeah. Discern from them, which means when you discern, you're trying to understand the differences between things. But it doesn't say discern them, it says discern from them, meaning you can tell, you can, you can understand the spheres by the role that they play, right? Like how do you, if you can understand something by the role it plays in some larger context. And really that's the, really the, we see that all the ways that those spheres are always described is, is in some sort of a function. What, what is the role that the sphere plays? How is that similar to the role that say something else plays that you're familiar with? But it's all in terms of the role that they play, what they actually are, and really getting at what they are is something that's impossible for us. So we can, in terms of knowing, the, knowing how they feature and how they function, we can actually get extremely far, and the more a person studies these things, they can get a very good understanding. And you don't need to know what they're not, you can know what they are in that sense. But what they actually are in of themselves, you will never know unless you're prophetic. Okay. And if you want to think about an analogy to that, Think about, think about a lot of things like, say, emotion. Can you have a good understanding of the role emotions play in your life? Now, if you were to ask yourself, but what in its essence is an emotion? Is that like a hard question to answer? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.